It's the TEH podcast, episode number 116. I'm Leo Notenboom of AskLeo.com. And I'm Gary Rosenzweig of MacMost.com. So how's the weather in Denver, Gary? Uh, better than today, but we did have our first major snowstorm of the did season. You? Yeah, about uh, six inches or so, depending upon where you were in the city. Yikes. Enough to have to shovel. That's six inches would shut Seattle down for a week. I mean, <laughs> really? it's <laughs> well, I mean, Denver doesn't get that much snow, but six inches wasn't. They did close some schools, which I'm not sure what that means because, I mean, I guess there were maybe, maybe some facilities that were open in some way. Interesting. Um, yeah, I hadn't even thought about that. The crossover between corona closures and uh, snow, well, snow days. Every day well, is a snow day now. <laughs> yeah, actually. So, yeah, we have like dueling disasters here in Colorado because, um, you know, we have our fires are worse. Well, they, before the snowstorm, they were worse than they even before. Right. So I know things have calmed down a bit on the coast. I was going to ask you about the, about the fires. But yeah, we had uh, a fire north of Rocky Mountain National Park, and there was a fire west of Rocky Mountain National Park. And the fire west of Rocky Mountain National Park did a bizarre thing. It jumped the Continental Divide, which if you've ever, if you've ever been to an area of the Continental Divide, that's not easy to do because usually no, when you get up to the ridge, there's there, no, there are no trees. I was going to say, it's, above, it's above the tree line, yeah. Yeah, it's almost always above. And this certainly in Rocky Mountain National Park, it is above the tree line. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I've, I've been not in, at this spot, but I have been up there and it is, you get up there and it is just rocks and stuff. Right. And, um, and it, the wind was strong enough uh, last week to blow it over and into Rocky Mountain National Park and start burning the park uh, so that was like very, um, bad. And then we had another fire start near Boulder. So, you know, there was an article I read about how, uh, this would normally have for schools in those areas have been a major issue if there weren't for the fact they were already in basically disaster mode from the beginning of the school year. Right. Um, they're just in double disaster mode now. And the towns themselves are also in double disaster mode because normally they would have to block roads, prevent tourists from coming, things like that. But, you know, <laughs> it was like just add one disaster on top of the other. And then, of course, the, the only thing that stops the uh, fires from spreading is a major snowstorm, which throws another uh, major emergency onto, um, you know, the stack. Well, it replaces one with the other, right? I mean, it, that one yeah. at least replaces the fire with some snow, so. It does, except that, of course, the fire smolders, and then what happens is the snow goes away, and the fires, you know, kind of start spreading again. Um, so, you know, we'll see what happens with this. And then, of course, you have the on top of that. So the temperatures drop below freezing, which isn't good when you're trying to fight fire with water. Right. You know, you can't fight fire with ice as easily. (laughs) So (laughs) it's just it's just been it's just been really. Yeah, it's been. uh, It's been very 2020 is what it's been. Colorado 2020, even even worse than a lot of other people's 2020s. So crazy times. Well, speaking of 2020, um, the. uh, latest update for Windows 10 is starting to roll out. Uh, I believe that people that want it can actually go into uh, their settings app and if they check for updates themselves, if they check for updates manually, they may be offered the opportunity to download what's been referred to as the uh, 2020 H2 for second half update for Windows 10. Um, it is, uh, I've got it on it. I've got one machine that um, had it available like almost immediately. And then my other machine, my, my laptop that I you know travel with, um, it doesn't seem to have it available yet. So I'm not sure. I know that they are phasing it in They're They're not just throwing it out to everybody right away, but um, they are sending it out. And I wanted to mention it today, not because it's really anything that special. There's, you know, some random changes as there always are. There's a lot of bug fixes. There are updates and upgrades and all that kind of stuff. What to me was more striking though, was how much of a non-event it really was. Certainly in my installation and in the installations of uh, some folks that I've heard have taken it as well. In other words, by being a non-event, I mean that um, it installs, it installs quickly. It's actually a very quick update this time for whatever reason. Uh, presumably, it, not a lot of huge changes to the product. Um, but 
you know, you reboot and things are working again. It just works, which is kind of, I think a lot of people consider this to be um, a surprise <laughs> because, you know, it not working is what makes the news all the time. Um, every month, every Patch Tuesday, or uh, you know, twice a year when they do these more major uh, feature updates, there's always breaking news. Microsoft breaks a gazillion machines with their latest update or whatever it is. Uh, when in reality, uh, one of the things that I keep trying to remind people of is that um, news is news because it's out of the ordinary. And for the most part, uh, Windows updates, Windows, these half yearly updates, they're just working. They're, they're actually doing really, really well. What a lot of people have a hard time to get their brain around, and I totally get this, large numbers are, are impossible to, to really comprehend. Uh, uh, Windows 10 is on something like over a billion machines by now, so, uh, which is just an incredible number, right? It's like, it's, um, uh, what's, our, what's our, the world population right now? Seven and a half billion? Something like that, yeah. So, um, you know, it's a machine for one eighth of the population, uh, although it's not distributed across people, because obviously, well, heck, I've got three of them. But the, <laughs> the uh, <laughs> you're, you're blowing the curve. I'm blowing the curve for sure, as are you know large corporations and such. But the point is, a billion installations of anything is is incredible. It's massive, and what ends up making the news, of course, is that when something goes wrong, when when an update breaks something, it's uh, breaking some percentage of those billion machines. But even a very small percentage is a really large number. For example, um, you know, the, the example that I've used in a couple of my articles has been, let's say that Windows 10's update breaks uh, something on a million machines. One million machines, I don't know, it doesn't matter, you know, for, for purposes of this example, what happens, but even if it just breaks them, right? Uh, a million machines is an incredibly huge number. And yet, it is less than one-tenth of 1% 1 of the installed Windows 10 base, uh, which means that as an average user, assuming that the failure is distributed randomly, which it never is, but assuming that it's distributed randomly, you still have a 999 out of 1,000 chance of everything just working fine for you. Uh, so I, I try to push back on a lot of people when they when they complain about how buggy Windows updates are, how unstable Windows updates are, by just throwing these large numbers at them because the number of machines that just work every update is also similarly incredible. The the place where Windows updates tend to fall down, fall down, if they're going to have a problem, it's going to be with a specific piece of hardware. That's why I said earlier that if the if it were updated, I'm sorry, if the failures were distributed randomly, never really happens. It has to do usually with some specific piece of hardware that nobody happened to test because it's, again, it's probably less than one-tenth of one percent of all the installed users. So even their extensive um, um, insiders program that does all the testing probably never even managed to touch this hardware until it got released. And then, of course, people with that hardware um, found out that, oops, there's a problem. Um, that's the more common scenario. And that's even less than, you know, usually way less than a million machines. And yet, there are um, news outlets who shall remain nameless, Forbes, that will often uh, just throw these horrid, clickbaity headlines out there that um, you know imply it's the end of the world because of this failure when again most of the time for most people it's just working and working well now you can argue about feature changes you know you don't like the start menu or you don't like this change or that change but the fact is it didn't reboot you know it didn't crash your machine it didn't fail um, there are design decisions that people can absolutely argue with. Uh, they do all the time. Certainly, I don't agree with every design decision that they make. But as an operating system these days, Windows 10 is actually, in my opinion, one of the more stable, more useful, and um, actually easiest to use operating systems that Microsoft has put out for a while. So I just wanted to get on that little bandwagon for a moment because, like I said, we're in that, we're in that phase right now where they're starting to roll out this update, and we're going to see headlines about how, yep, you know, it's going to break some piece of hardware because it's software. Software is going to break something. But in reality... Um, the actual impact, the pragmatic impact on the average consumer is going to be very, 
very unlikely. And of course, anybody who listens or what reads Ask Leo um, with any regularity will know that, of course, you're backing up before you do this anyway. So it really doesn't impact you that directly anyway. Anyway, that was just my little my little yeah. rant on the well, latest Windows update. Well, there's you know it's the, the people forget about the squeaky wheel syndrome, right? So right. whenever there's an update, uh, whenever you update anything that's got massive numbers, people have problems with it. Like you said, you know, hardware can obviously be one area. The um, and you know if you want to look online for bloggers or news reports where people have thought, you know, I'm going to file a report today. It's going to be 10 paragraphs long, and it's just going to talk about how there was an update and nothing happened. <laughs> it, it just doesn't, you know, nobody blogs about that. That's not interesting. But it doesn't generate clicks. By it doesn't generate history. clicks. Yeah. It's not newsworthy. Um, so when you, there isn't a major update for Windows or any operating system, uh, you certainly, if you search, you'll be able to find people complaining about it, either because it changes something that they liked or perhaps it causes a problem, like you said, with a piece of hardware. What you won't be able to compare it to is the number of people that it didn't affect at all because nobody's writing about that. Nobody right. ever does. And the same right. thing with forums. I mean, people say, oh, I get this all the time. Uh, you know, the Apple forums, people are tons of people complaining about this. So it's obviously a problem. And everybody has this problem. Yes. The like, jump you know, from these people yeah. to everybody. Everybody is always has there, the yeah. problem. Yeah. It's just that nobody is going and saying, you know, I'm going to go to the Apple discussion site to make a post just to say how nothing went wrong with my Mac today. <laughs> nobody does that. <laughs> so you, you know, you only have problems and you only get, uh, you know, blog posts and news articles about when things go wrong. And that, makes people think, well, I looked, I found 10 people that complained, no people that just said I had no problems at all. So, you know, you jump to that conclusion. It must be everybody. I will, I will admit that this is one of the areas that um, I suspect Macs have less of a problem. Because as I said, uh, this is often a random piece of hardware or specific OEM incompatibility that wasn't yeah. properly addressed or whatever. And that's just not a space that Macs play in, that Apple plays in. It's, 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 it's one of the advantages of essentially controlling all of your own hardware. The, uh, the attack surface, if you want to call it that, or the testing matrix becomes significantly smaller and allows you to make sure that um, on you know the, the vast majority of hardware that's out there, whatever Apple releases is Stands a pretty good chance of working across the board. Right. Uh, whereas with Windows, because by definition, anybody can make a piece of hardware for it and plug it in and hope it works. Uh, yeah, there's so much that, you know, Microsoft simply can't manage to test all possible combinations of all possible everythings. Uh, so the net result is that, yeah, when it hits, when it hits the street, you know, that one person who has the, uh, the one version of that one particular piece of hardware that Microsoft didn't test. Well, yeah, of course you'll have yep. a problem. It's not unheard of in the Mac world, but I'm sure it does happen uh, statistically much. You don't have a lot of third-party hardware, do you? No, there's no, it's not so much, sometimes third-party hardware, sometimes external devices, things like that. But um, occasionally there'll be an update and then there'll be this thing. Oh, if you have the 2017, you know, 13 inch MacBook pro right. with the, this Intel graphics, you know, you know, the three gig Intel graphics thing, you know, then this causes a problem with, you know, whatever, playing this format of file. Right. And then usually there's an update and people will say, you know, so it happens. Uh, there's enough variation that it happens. And because it, it's not so much like you could just say, oh, we, you know, Apple doesn't have a test bank of these machines it can test, but it's what different things they can test on. You know, if an update causes a problem with a certain type of sound file playing in a certain app like iMovie, you know, and it's just like, well, they may have had that machine. They may have done some basic testing, but they didn't test that exact combination of that type of file right. with that compression level in that app right. with this system update, yeah. you know. You so. still suffer from all the combinatorics of all the different pieces of software that may right. or may not be installed. Those definitely come from third parties and all of the, you know, the different variations there. But, uh, but at least you don't have, and, and the, I think it's pretty reasonable to assume that, um, uh, within within some amount of reasons, I would expect that Apple probably has one of everything when it comes to the oh, hardware yeah. that it's going to test everything on. And by that, I mean, you know, 
uh, it's, it's got one with, with two gigs of Ram and three gigs of Ram and four gigs, you know, those kinds of things. I mean, it's just not that hard for that, for them to expand that matrix completely. Uh, whereas it's sure, yeah. pretty impossible for, for Microsoft to do that. Yeah. Yeah. They just have to just probably have a variety and, uh, and yeah, it was always interesting back in the day to, uh, you know, go walk through some of the, uh, the labs where Microsoft had all that equipment, uh, you know, just banks and banks of machines. Um, in fact, one of my last positions at Microsoft was as the um, a manager of the build lab for Visual Studio. And we were in charge of not only building the product and, and the setup, but also, you know, doing a lot of the hardware that actually the build process was running in Visual Studio. So it was a kind of a self-test scenario. And even there, you know, the amount of hardware that we would throw at something like that was pretty impressive, pretty massive. Um, there's been a lot of change in how Microsoft tests things since then, um, you know, not necessarily for the good. But um, it was always interesting to just walk through and see all those machines running all those tests for all that time. Because, of course, we automated as much as possible. Mm. Now, of course, those labs are kind of quiet because everybody's at home. Yeah. And uh, so I saw a story today that another, yet another big Internet company, in this case Reddit, has basically switched to a policy of uh, you're probably going to be working from home for the indefinite future. <laughs> um, so in other words, uh, making it kind of okay, making their company more virtual. Uh, I'm sure a big company like that will still have office space, but the norm will probably switch to people working from home. And they join Twitter and other companies that have already made this jump. We have a friend, a mutual friend, that is a uh, has a fairly decent-sized company, and he already switched to basically permanently being virtual. Um, Partly because there's really no end in sight for you know, when people can safely work together, right. um, and you know, just also because there's some advantages to it. Because it, it, it's interesting what's happening. Because it certainly tech companies had a little bit of a leg up in this whole virtual workspace thing because a lot of tech companies, especially if you're big, already had some people working virtually before the pandemic. You know, they'd make a hire of somebody that was just lived too far away to work in an office. Maybe uh, somebody who worked for years wanted to continue working, but they they moved away. Um, and so, any big tech company probably had a few people that lived elsewhere or someplace where there was no office for that company. So, switching to the majority of the company or almost all of them being virtual in the pandemic. They were able to at least say, well, you know, we, we know how to do this. We just now it's just everybody. Um, and now companies switching over to saying, well, we just may be this way for the foreseeable future. Who knows permanently? Because there, there are other really cool advantages to doing it. And one of them, of course, being uh, saving a ton of money on commercial real estate. Right. Um, you know, if you these tech companies, you know, when you have a software development company, for instance, uh, you really could, you know, pile up the people, you know, a small company could be 20 <laughs> or 30 or 40 engineers and, and computer scientists. And some of these other companies that have multiple projects going on and multiple parts could have hundreds or even thousands of software engineers um, working. And if you want to put them all in offices at desks, that's a lot of square footage where you're paying commercial real estate. Uh, for that, um, it could be a major or even the major expense for a company, um, you know, besides probably the salaries themselves. Right. So uh, telling people to work from home, uh, you know, saves a lot of money for the company. Uh, also, a lot of tech workers like the idea. Not everybody. Some people don't. But a lot of the tech workers like the idea of not having a commute, being able to work from home, being able to have their own office in their house and all that. Um so it could be a benefit. I mean, it's it's funny to think that, you know, la this time last year, there were probably some people, uh, you know, uh, negotiating jobs with tech companies and trying to negotiate for, I'd like to work from home. Like, right. that's a benefit for me. And then pushing back and saying, well, we'd really like to have you here in the office. You know, and now things have kind of flipped where that's expected. Oh, yeah, you will work from home. We don't have a place for you here. and we, We're all social distancing anyway. Um, 
And then in the future, you'll probably find people saying, oh, I really want to work for some place that gives me an office and a place to go to. So, you know, it, this could change uh, a lot of things like commercial real estate going forward. Um, you know, there could be, I know in cities like my city, Denver, they were building as fast as they could for to provide more commercial space, office mm-hmm. space. And that is probably, um, you know, going to come to a halt and maybe even a reversal because housing is short supply here. And I could see them very easily, you know, I'm willing to bet a few of these big office complexes and maybe uh, skyscrapers downtown might be looking to do a conversion from office space to residential. Um, that would be interesting and make a lot of sense. Uh, so, and then companies can also, of course, um, make things a lot cheaper uh, for themselves, not having the commercial real estate. You know, it, it's funny, I was thinking years ago, especially like when I started having employees, uh, it, it was unthinkable to have an employee come in and work and use their own personal computing device for work. Like that wasn't even something that anybody even, you know, wanted to do or I wanted to do. If they, if I hired them, they came into the office and there was a desk and a computer that I provided and they just worked on those. They wouldn't, if they had their own computer at home or their own laptop that they brought with them, they wouldn't use that for work and I wouldn't want them to. Uh, but, you know, things have changed a lot. And I know now, especially in the startup community, it's almost expected that you, you know, you come into work, you bring your laptop and you're working on that laptop. Um, the, you know, that changed a lot. And now, of course, uh, you know, you're probably in a situation where companies may buy you a computer, but it's going to sit in your house. Right. So like drawing that line between like, well, this is a work computer and I'm not supposed to check Facebook on it. Um, you know, so I'm going to have this other second computer right next to it that I check Facebook on. Right, which at home you may or may not have room for or, or yeah. anything like that. Yeah, so um, it's... But it does assume that you've got a, you know, a, a sufficiently fast internet connection at home as well. Yes, so, um, so who's paying for that? Is yep. that... I mean, in the past, I would have expected years ago that if somebody wanted you to work from home, that they would have paid for your internet connection. But right. today, it's like, I don't know. I, I, I can't see like a startup doing that. Um, and even a big company, I don't know if they could provide, they provide you with a subsidy or something. You certainly wouldn't want to go and have two internet connections, one paid for by your company that you can't (laughs) use for personal and another that you pay for on your own. That seems like ridiculous, uh, especially for people that only have one choice, an internet provider, you know, it's like, what do you, okay, so we really do. Although you used to do that with phone lines. That was fairly normal with phone lines. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, have a work yep. phone and a home phone for yep, you know, landline. Now we have zero landlines. Well, okay, we have one. Well, <laughs> well I should okay. say that, you know, it's funny. So my house does have, you know, copper phone lines running to it, of course. And yes, when we moved in, the previous owner had their, you know, their personal line and their business line, and they were two different phones in two different locations in the house. Um, yeah. But now the copper lines that are in the ground actually aren't being used now that you mention it because my quote-unquote landline is coming across my cable connection. Um, it's interesting with respect to to go back to the commercial real estate stuff for a minute Um, I'll include a link with the show notes Microsoft a couple of years ago embarked on a fairly massive rebuild of their corporate campus or a large portion of their corporate campus and that's currently underway Uh, the the intent was to um, add a lot more office space a lot more parking um, it's it's a it's a really big deal. It's probably the same order of magnitude, I would assume, as um, Apple's new campus, which I assume is open, isn't it? They've moved in. Oh yeah, there. yeah. Well, it, open, but then you know now it's mostly abandoned. Understood. Yeah, but they they yeah. were they did finish the. Yeah. the oh yeah, no, they everybody building moved, moved in, in and all that. Um, so you know, this is at least on an order of magnitude with that. And they're continuing. The construction continues as we speak. The question is, okay, what is life going to look like in a year? What is life going to look like when the construction is quote unquote done? Um, That's a really, really interesting question because Microsoft too is one of the companies that has gone down this path of saying, you know what, if you're working from home, you're working from home indefinitely. That's okay. Mm. Um, And I suspect that uh, there's just, a lot to be figured out once life returns to whatever normal starts to look like in a year, year and a half, something like that. Uh, I just, I, it's, 
Yes, you're right. The, the, there are a couple of things that I thought were really, really interesting. One is um, the, the unintended consequence of the effect of all this on home prices. Because mm-hmm. if you don't have to work at an office, why bother to live close to it? Right. Why well, not there's... live somewhere where um, you can get a good internet connection? I mean, that obviously becomes one of the driving factors wherever you are. But um, whether it's 10 miles away or 100 miles away or, you know, f- uh, 500 miles away, just it doesn't matter. Uh, the, and as a result, uh, I suspect that it's possible that some more remote housing prices might go up, but there's a really good chance that uh, housing prices in currently very dense and very expensive areas might eventually start to decrease as the demand also decreases because more and more people realize that they don't need to be close to work anymore. Yeah. And I, there's a couple of things about like how this is going to change homes as well as offices. I'm one of those people that's attracted to downtown areas. I live kind of downtown now, right. but my wife and I are thinking uh, since we're in the process of becoming empty nesters of, of moving again to a smaller, something smaller, more suitable for a couple. And you know, I want to move closer to downtown because I like downtown. I like being close to restaurants and events and things that are going on. The funny thing is, of course, during the pandemic, yeah. that's not, you know, not yep. yeah, none of that is, is good or, uh, you know, it's not that attractive anymore. So you have some people that are saying, well, this is a good opportunity. You know, we were thinking of going the opposite way, getting out of downtown and moving to the suburbs. And since Downtown may not come back till next year or the year after that, or it may take be a much longer recovery. Uh, let's cut our losses and get out now. So there's kind of, a, I think, an exodus, you know, light exodus from the city. At least people that are looking for new places are saying, well, let's not spend all the money to live downtown anymore. Let's move further away because it doesn't matter because we don't have to drive to work and we don't need to be near these, you know, the, the centers of attention for things going on. So... So there's that, um, and I, I'm sure that hasn't shaken out yet. I, like I don't think real estate prices even reflect that yet. Right. I, I think it's it's they're lagging, um, and then of course if things roar back, you may see the opposite effect. You may see people that maybe had been waiting, saying, "Well, we wanted to move downtown, but it seemed pointless to do it during the pandemic." Pandemic once it's over, uh, whenever that is, that you know they say, well now's the time, let's do it, uh, and downtown then may start to flourish as people who maybe took took living downtown for granted or that downtown was there for granted now say, you know what, you know I really miss going to concerts or you know the symphony or to out to restaurants and we took it for granted and we didn't do it for you know we, we didn't do enough of it now that things are back. Let's keep doing it. And then downtown may actually have a boom, which might be interesting. But the other thing going on, of course, is people need home offices. Right. You know, it's like, okay, for a few months, I work at a desk that's next to my bed or that's in the living room. Fine. But um, if you're really going to do that as your regular, you know, five days a week, nine to five working environment, you may think, well, in my next home, I want a dedicated space, an right. office or a bedroom that I could turn into an office. Um, and if, especially if you have, uh, if you're living with others, family, spouse, you know, it's, it could be tough to have, you know, you might want to have your own spaces. A, a couple um, might now actually be in the market for a four bedroom <laughs> because right. simply you want, you have the main bedroom, then you, perhaps you want a guest room and then you each need your own office. And it, it you know, and it may have been in the past before, uh, you know, the Zoom world, um, that you could work in the same office or sitting in the living room. But now people are, you know, in meetings. And if you're talking, um, you know, there's a way to have headphones and listen and be the only person to hear. But there's really no way to be the only person talking in the same room. You know, if there's two people, desk at each end, if you both have a Zoom meeting at the same time, you're going to hear each other talking. Uh, So it could very easily be the case where you want a four bedroom, even for two people, which wasn't the case in the past. I also wonder if things like um, soundproofing is too strong a word, but at least accommodating 
um, you know, some kind of sound barriers a little bit more, more readily would be something uh, that starts to get factored into some of these new home offices. Um, I know that uh, I've long had planned a a remodel of the office that I'm sitting in right now. And yeah, you know, understanding exactly how best to dampen the sound that's coming from other places in the house is an interesting problem to at least factor in. It won't never be soundproof. I'm not going to go that far. But those are things that factor in. Um, One of the other things that I thought really interesting about a lot of the current discussion about how everybody's working from home is that there remains um, a class of worker, which sounds horrid, but they end up getting treated like a separate class, um, who can't work from home. Mm. There are jobs, even in the tech space, that uh, you just have to be there for. Uh, if for nothing else, then, you know, when, when you talk about things like data centers, right, all these computers that we're remoting into, they got to live somewhere. All the servers that run Zoom, they got to live somewhere. And when they fail, somebody has to be able to physically walk over and replace the hard disk or walk over and pull the plug or walk over and, uh, and actually make sure that the reboot the reboot that was initiated remotely actually completed. Uh, there's, there's just, there's still a call for people that need to be physically present. Uh, it's just not, uh, it's not as cut or dry as everybody at a company like Microsoft or everybody yeah. at a company like Twitter or Facebook can suddenly just start to work from home. Yeah, definitely. It's uh uh, it's going to take some time to sort things out. And then after the pandemic and there's no, you know, overriding reason to go one way or the other, it's going to be interesting to see what really happens. Like will the tech industry in particular stay um, remote or will there be a, a, a like a move to go back? I mean, a lot of these tech companies were, they, they use their location as the way to attract people, right? They had, yes. oh, cafeterias with amazing yep. food and chefs and workout rooms and, and, you know, just like, here's our campus and it's beautiful and all of that. And, you know, you would, they would play against each other. It's like, oh, we have a, you know, a gourmet chef. Well, we've got a you know, fitness center and it's free membership and all this right. stuff. And now if they just go and say, no, we're ha- we have none of that. You work from your spare bedroom and, uh, and you don't get any of those benefits. Um, you know, do, do companies then say, well, we're going to start offering those things again in hopes of attracting people. And maybe people, I don't know, it'd be interesting to see if it's, if the psychological parts, like if, if after a couple of years, if people say, I've had enough of this, I really want to be social and, uh, well, I have to admit that, you know, as fundamentally an introvert who has been working from home for the last, uh, gosh, 17, 18 years that I've been doing this. Um, you know, I never thought I'd say this, but I miss people. (laughs) I actually do miss being able to go out to restaurants and being able to get together with people face to face, or even just sitting in a corner of a noisy Starbucks. Um, these are things that, uh, so, you know, that, that I miss. And like I said, being that I consider myself fundamentally an introvert, uh, I have to wonder what, the rest of the, the, the world is doing, what, the, what all the extroverts are doing, how are they coping and how quickly they're going to want to bounce back to what they would consider to be a more normal lifestyle. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I've, uh, you know, like, like you, I'm pretty much at home all the time before this and have been since around 2008 mm-hmm. working on my own. And I, you know, have definitely missed working with people all the time. Um, and, uh, you know, it's tough because, I don't know how to, you know, how to do what I do with other people around because it's like I'm, you know, one person kind of solopreneur. Right. So, uh, you know, co-working space is interesting to me. Um, and it was something I was looking to before the pandemic and maybe I'll try it after the pandemic. I don't, I don't know. I, I'd be afraid with co-working space. I would just arrive, go into my individual office and then leave at the end of the day and, and right. still not see anybody. Um, I'm kind of an omnivert rather than an introvert. I love social interaction. I love being around people. I, I draw energy from being around people and being in social situations, but I'm not outgoing. So put me at a party where I don't know anybody and I will 
sit by myself right. and be miserable. Uh, but put me at a party where people know me or want to talk to me, and I'll have a great time. And um, so, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. I'm also, you know, going back to like the you know, having more bedrooms in your house kind of thing. Uh, it's interesting. The, it, the definition of an office and a bedroom are different. Uh, and there's some fundamental differences depending upon where you are. Uh, and if real estate goes more towards the let's have office spaces inside of homes, it doesn't necessarily mean extra bedrooms because, for instance, an office space could have no windows. Uh, which is useful because when you design a home or an apartment or something, it's very hard to design it in such a way that every room has windows, uh, but they usually do. And without a window, it's going to be hard to call a place a bedroom. And also closets, too, are another thing. But you could, it could be easier to design a space that had an interior room with no closet, no windows, but be plenty big and say, this is an office. If and, I'm going to be working at home, yeah, I want a window. <laughs> well, you, you, it's desirable. It's definitely desirable. I think but it's not, more than the desirable. I mean, a, a I certain. I mean, it, it's it's you know, just it, it harkens back to some of the days back at Microsoft, right? Even the interior offices, you could see out the your your the window of the office across the hall, right? Um, and, <laughs> yeah. and window offices were very desirable and they were significantly more comfortable. Um, if you're going to go so far as to have to work from home, then yes, I would want to make sure that um, wherever I worked was as conducive to my comfort uh, as well as just getting the sure. job done. And I just can't see <laughs> leaving a cubicle to go work in a cubicle at home. I mean, that just doesn't, doesn't make sense. I could see I could see doing it, um, but I wouldn't I wouldn't lock myself in the office all day. You know, I would use it as more of an excuse to to get out to right. maybe take that Zoom meeting on my laptop on the on the deck, you know, in the backyard or the mm -hmm. balcony or whatever it was, or to you know, uh, I don't know. Just I would still I would use it like you know if you had an interior office in an office building, how you would then take a break. And or you know maybe go into a meeting room or whatever right. it is that did have windows here and there, um, so yeah, it, it's just and it comes down to if you know if it's what you if you can't afford that four bedroom condo or house, right? You make do. You make do, and you say, well, you know, better to have a, a place that does have a ten by ten space in the middle that could be my office, yeah, than having to have a desk in the bedroom or this, this thing in the that used room. to be my walk-in closet. It's yes. my office now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I don't know. I think people will adjust, but you know, new home, I think when new homes are built, I think we'll be looking more and more at them being built with this in mind. Uh, same thing with apartments and condos. And when conversions are made, you know, and updates to apartment buildings and such, I think that's one of the things that will become more standard. And perhaps instead of seeing like, things like four bedroom homes we might see listings that say like three bedroom two office right homes right. um and and that would just become a standard thing it's funny my the discussion about you know working in a windowless room it reminded me this is we've, we've focused a lot on uh tech companies because tech companies were yeah. well, kind of on the leading edge for a lot of this kind of stuff and were the probably the best positioned to react quickly to having their people work from home. Plus it's the T in T E H. <laughs> there you go. Uh but but uh you know there's a lot of companies, a lot of institutions out there that are also using technology in very similar ways just for other things. The one that comes to mind is uh, my, I have a niece who works as a, a paralegal for a government agency. And uh, of course, she's been working from home uh, for the last multiple months. Uh, they, uh, to go back to one of your original comments, they provided her a computer. She brought a computer home with her. In fact, they, when, they, when they first moved to working from home, she and her husband went to her office on an off day so nobody else would be around. And they uh, basically took her computer and brought it home so that she could do her work from home. 
Uh, unfortunately, she's working in a windowless basement. So I guess it's, <laughs> it is yeah. what it is, yeah. right? There you make you do with what you've got. Uh, but there are a lot of no, what we would consider to be non-tech companies who are using a tremendous amount of technology to begin with to do whatever it is they do that are also facing exactly these same problems. And this is just one example of a government agency where, uh, you know, yep, even the paralegal stuff, uh, that's, that's all about what you're doing on your computer all day long anyway. So whether the computer is sitting in an office downtown or in a basement, um, doesn't necessarily make a certain amount and make the difference. Um, I think the other thing that I think uh, a lot of people are going to, how do I want to put this? One of the things that's going to continue to evolve is, uh, I'll just say Zoom as a generic term for um, online meetings, face-to-face, quote-unquote, online meetings. I think exactly how Zoom is going to be used going forward will evolve fairly dramatically. Uh, everybody jumped on Zoom right away, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, or its equivalents, and started having all their face-to-face meetings, exactly the same meetings they had before, except they were all sitting in front of their computers and webcams. I think, I'm, given that there is now a thing called Zoom fatigue, that uh, the concept that, that's that's giving what is really meeting fatigue a little bit more um, legitimacy and allowing people to have the discussion about, okay, you know, do we really need to do this as a face-to-face meeting? Do we really need to do this over Zoom? Uh, And maybe there'll be an evolution of how many meetings are happening and how frequently they're happening and who has to attend the meetings and is a meeting really the right way to solve this particular problem and so on. (laughs) I think there's a lot of social interaction, a lot of, 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 of business organization that's going to evolve a fair amount depending on exactly where we land on the whole working from home thing. Indeed. Indeed. Um, let's see. So what did you find cool this week? Oh, actually there was one last thing I wanted to talk about. I think about I was this. just, I was just looking at that and I wanted you to talk about yeah. it. Yeah. So, so uh, there is a, you know, so my, actually this comes from my dad <laughs> my father who got, got me into reading science fiction. He mentioned months ago to me he's like it didn't this all happen in an isaac asimov book talking about like working from home and and all of that and it's like one of the robot books and he's like i think maybe caves of steel which makes sense you think oh there's that name caves of steel you're i don't know and i looked it up because uh, it now sounded familiar, familiar, familiar to me too. It's actually not that book. It's actually the book that's right before it or after it in the series. The Naked Sun mm-hmm. is an Isaac Asimov robot story in which the individuals live completely isolated lives and communicate virtually. Everybody has their own place they live, and it's rare that anybody ever sees anybody else. And of course, being a robot story, there there are lots of servants and robots and things like that uh, that do work for you. But you, as a human, live kind of an isolated life, and they use not uh, not Zoom but holograms to communicate with each other. So you get together with your friends holographically instead of virtually. Right. Um, and and then of course, I think the the story. I read this when I was young, and I read the synopsis after you know when my my father mentioned this uh, to like bring myself up to date. And then we like, Oh yeah, I remember this. And of course the mystery is that if somebody is murdered, but if nobody ever sees anybody else, how was this person killed by another human? Because robots of course are, you know, had the three laws of robotics and aren't supposed to be killed. But it is interesting that there is an Asimov story where, you know, this remote work and, and living kind of socially distant lives was talked about in the 50s. Right, right. And, and I think it's like, well, you know, I can't believe somebody isn't jumping on this as a, <laughs> let's make this TV show because you can make it over Zoom. You know, you can go and say, all right, let's not jump to the whole holographic thing. But if this was an actual story and people actually only could communicate over Zoom, um, then you can certainly film this without having to get the actors together. Uh, you know, everybody could just film it in their own homes and 
they could basically create their own story. Anyway, I thought I'd bring that up. And, and sure enough, if I, you do search for the naked son, Isaac Asimov and 2020 pandemic, I'm not the only one that has noticed that the story has a right. lot of relevance right. all of a sudden. It's very so, cool. Cause I would, when I saw this on the show notes, um, before we started recording, I quickly had to go over and, um, read the, the, you know, the summary of the book. Yeah. I'd read it years ago. Right. I yeah, mean, yeah. I've, 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 I chewed through all of Asimov and Clark and Heinlein and all that stuff Me too. when I was in my, uh, my teens and twenties. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's been forever since I read this series. It's the iRobot series, by the way, people yes. may recognize the iRobot having been a movie some about a decade ago that wasn't really all that good, but, yeah. um, and certainly not particularly true to the story, but the, mm-hmm. uh, the books are excellent. And now you have uh, uh encouraged me, stimulated me, caused me to, uh, dang it, I'm going to have to read those again. Those were good books. And of They're course, good, good in today's day and age, it means that you know, the paper copy I had is long gone. So I'm going to have to get my Kindle and download it. And for me these days, if, if, if a book stands a chance of being read, it probably needs to be on my Kindle or on my phone or something. Sure. <laughs> Audio books for me. So, so what'd you find cool this week? So this week, uh, late, I think... I think it was midweek last week, Tesla started releasing what they called their beta to a limited number of cars of their full self-driving FSD, which of course isn't really full self-driving. I'll get into that in a second. There's a video that I ran across uh, naturally from paying attention to the various Tesla discussion groups and sites and so forth that we will link to in the show notes. And it's basically, you know, one of the, the Tesla fans who was got the, uh, the beta for his, I think it's a model three and for like 45 minutes just shows the car driving him around uh, and actually navigating some uh, what to most current Tesla drivers will recognize as being fairly interesting and difficult obstacles for the, uh, for the car to navigate through, uh, you know, unlined, you know, unlined back streets in a neighborhood, uh, cars parked on the side, especially if there aren't any lines, oncoming traffic, merging into onto an arterial, uh, then immediately needing to take a left turn. Uh, so having to cross a couple of lanes of traffic in order to get to that left turn light mm. lane, uh, waiting for the light, waiting for the traffic, that kind of stuff. Anyway, it's all really, really cool. And I think it, it's another case of um, uh, almost, you know, dovetailing into the uh, the iRobot stuff because the cars are getting smarter. They, they it is an incremental improvement. It is not fully self driving. Um, that's one of those things, and I actually think um, Elon's getting sued for this because people assume that if you label something as being fully self driving, it is fully self driving. What? In, in other words, you don't have to do anything. Right. Yeah. Uh, but in fact, uh, the state of the technology remains that uh, the driver needs to be present, the driver needs to be alert, and the driver still needs to have a hand on the steering wheel in case they need to be able to take over, which they may be able to, you know, they may be required to take over at any point in time, mm. which means it isn't really fully self-driving. It's just really, really good self-driving, just not fully. I think a lot of people conflate or confuse it with what is more correctly referred to as autonomous self-driving, which means um, you get in the car, you tell it where to go, and you fall asleep, and you wake up and you're there. Uh, Nonetheless, even with that um, on the... uh, um, you know, the, the technology or the terminology being slightly confusing, um, I just thought it was really cool to watch. Um, I think, as you know, I drive a Tesla. I've got a Model S from a couple of years ago. Uh, supposedly, it has the hardware for this kind of self-driving. And I'm looking forward to, uh, to seeing just exactly how much uh, it's going to allow me to do. The other thing I was going to point out about this, by the way, is that there was a, a news article, a couple of them, that... Uh, basically indicated that as part of this beta experience for the drivers that are actually using the uh, this, this advanced full self-driving mode, uh, Tesla is collecting a load, 
a load of data from the cars as they're driving around, mm, which imagine, yeah. they're using to uh, presumably improve the algorithms, improve the neural network, uh, so that when it gets released to the masses, um, it's just that much better having learned from everything that it's, that had been uh, been happening so far. So anyway, I just like I said, literally, I thought that was pretty cool. Cool. Um, I, it, now was it, I don't, I don't know if it was you or somebody <laughs> on the show. So perhaps one of our frequent guests or, uh, previous co-hosts, uh, Randy or Kay may have mentioned a book called because internet. I think it was me. Okay. Yeah. So I, I, I put that on my list and I, I got around to reading it. It's a cool book by Gretchen McCulloch that is, uh, basically goes into language linguistics and how the internet has changed. Uh, language and how language is used online. And I, I found the coolest parts to be about history because I didn't know all those things about how emoticons uh, had started and um, right. the, you know, fascinating bits like for the fact it took 20 years for uh, people to figure out what we take for granted now is the the way messaging works. You know, one message on top of the other, and then you know, oh, right, just keep right. going. Yeah. And it's like it seems obvious. Seems like that probably they you know on the first day of the internet, somebody said, well, let's just put this together. But it actually took twenty years of different things before they stumbled upon this obvious answer that now seems like how could it have ever been any other way? Um, and lots of other stuff about even the th the way people punctuate their messages and stuff. it was it was a real surprise to me that that apparently i'm being passive aggressive by yes. ending my sentences with a period the period <laughs> is passive aggressive for, for some people and i know that i mean i know i've run into that before you know where i've answered people instead of okay it just seemed to me to be um you know hey i could save a character by typing the letter k that's what i say you know somebody says hey you want to do this i say k instead of okay and then i found out well that is just why are you mad at me why are you so mad at me <laughs> like well i'm not you know oh it's funny know. one she didn't address which actually surprised me yeah. now that i think about it um is kk oh yeah no i don't remember which is something which is essentially that. okay but yeah. it was a faster shorthand apparently invented or used by gamers when they're uh, busy gaming and chatting at the same time. Yes, yeah. So anyway, it's if you like linguistics and uh, stuff and you're curious about how things got to where they are now with how people type messages and use emoji and memes too, you know, how mm -hmm. memes came about mm -hmm. and how memes aren't really anything very new, right. but things like memes have exi uh, existed for a long time because um, she does go deep into history and it is interesting to be like, oh yeah, that is kind of like that, yep. you know. So anyway, there's that. So how about blatant self-promotion? So uh, the article that I want to point people at this week is how do I remove malware from Windows 10 uh, in 2020? Where okay, in, yeah. in, in 2020 is in 2020. basically making sure that people realize the article's current. Um, it's askleo.com slash 3811. And it is essentially the steps you need to go through if you believe or you have determined that you have malware on your machine. Uh, they are... I will call them uh, increasingly uh, painful steps. If the first step doesn't remove it, the second step is more painful, the third step is more painful, and the fourth is, is more painful yet. Um, and as you can imagine, right, the, the, the bottom line, the absolute um, you know, nuclear option if you actually can't remove something from your machine any other way is to do a complete reformat and reinstall of Windows. But uh, hopefully some of the intervening steps are things that um, uh, can actually get the problem dealt with and also uh, teach the walkaway lesson that prevention is significantly easier than the cure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. How about you? Uh, so I did some, I almost made this my main thing that I talked about this time because I did something very different uh, with one of my episodes last week. I did a live episode. So I've done uh, live streaming in the past, but it's always been where I have said, oh, I'm going to be live streaming at a certain time on YouTube, mm -hmm. and you just come and ask me questions. And I have the screen showing there, and somebody asks me something, and maybe I show them or just answer myself, you know, and I do that for like an hour, answer a bunch of questions and all that. And then I got this idea of, well, what if I did, like so many TV shows did, a live episode? 
where I tried to do a regular episode, but like as a broadcaster. So using OBS Studio, which is, you know, this free, great free software for doing broadcast type things, I set up a, like an episode that I could do by just switching like you would if it was a live news show. Right. You know, so I had my intro in there. I had like uh, graphics that would appear on screen. I had a way that I was at the bottom corner and you saw my screen. I also had a way that I was like taking up most of the screen. You saw the logo and the background and, you know, green screen and everything. And I had it all and I practiced that I could actually switch between these and just do an episode where I, you know, started and no cuts, no editing, nothing, do it live. And I then I streamed that to YouTube and I, I picked a topic and the topic happened to be using iMovie to create a montage video. And of course I didn't try to do a five or 10 minute episode because it takes actually a lot of work to edit down a step-by-step -step process to five or 10 minutes. Right, right. Uh, there was no way I was gonna be able to get everything perfect and do like five or 10 minutes. So I thought, well, I'm not even gonna try. Instead, I'm going to show people when you use a creative tool like editing video, um, that you experiment, you play around. You don't just say, I know exactly what I want to do and here's are the steps to do it. It's like, I would, you know, uh, let's apply this filter. Now let's apply this filter. Let's trim this a little bit and you know, all that. And I basically did it as if I was naturally taking an hour to edit some video clips into a montage, but I did it as a live episode and it went pretty well. I was able to, uh, I was able to do it, answer a few questions along the way that were left in the live chat. Uh, put together a little iMovie project during that hour. Um, and of course, people watched live and then YouTube made the video available immediately for people to rewatch or people who missed it to be able to come in. Uh, YouTube even has this great thing where you as the creator can download the video. So I downloaded it afterwards and then uh, created, you know, recompressed it and put it as a podcast episode. So now that it's all over, it looks like a normal episode, except it's very long. Right. <laughs> um, and it was interesting. And I, I am planning on doing another one this week on another topic. Have you Matter been fact, announcing them ahead of time so people so, know to show up? Yeah. So I announced in my Thursday newsletter, which is my main way that people find out about anything that I do. Mm -hmm. I announced it as the top thing on the Thursday newsletter, and I'll be doing it again in this Thursday's newsletter announcing that I'll be doing another live episode, probably something with numbers and spreadsheets this time. Um, and the general plan is to see, well, if I try to make this a regular Friday thing, uh, it, it, it doesn't really take me that much more time than doing a normal episode because I'm not doing all the editing and cuts. I'm doing a little bit of prep work and make sure everything's right before I go live. And then when I'm done, it takes me a little bit of time to wrap things up and uh, do some settings for YouTube and things like that. But you know, it basically can be this long live episode that I do on Fridays. Um, I'm going to try to commit to doing it for a little while and seeing how it goes. And if I want to continue to do it, you know, if it's, it takes that much more energy or if it gets watched more or less or whatever. But anyway, they, they will, uh, you know, include a link to the, um, to the one I did on Friday. So very cool. Um, yeah. yeah. As you know, I've experimented a little bit with live as well, so I know and and OBS. OBS is is yeah, awesome it is. Um, for this kind of stuff. If we ever decide we want to live stream the recording of this podcast, for example, yeah. um, which we should do sometime, just for the hell of it, um, you know, it means we'll have to put on a shirt or whatever. <laughs> but but um, no pants though. Pants are optional. Yeah. The uh, uh, you know OBS and streaming to something like um, YouTube would be uh, would be exactly the way to do it. Right. Um, there were a couple of things I wanted to mention before we before we strike out today. Um, <laughs> I got a question this morning, actually, from someone asking, what the heck is TEH? I don't understand what it stands for. What does uh -huh. it mean? Yada, yada. Um, so I basically reminded him and will remind everybody who's or our, our listener that um, TEH, of course, used to be the Tech Enthusiast Hour. Um, we remain tech and we remain enthusiastic, but sometimes getting an hour out of this, well, we would overshoot, we would undershoot for whatever reason when we did a little bit of a rejiggering of the uh, of the podcast and the hosts and the schedule and so forth. We just went with TEH because. And also, 
for those that don't realize it, it's also an homage, a call out to a typo that we all make all the time. Instead yep. of typing T-H-E, we often type T-E-H and look kind of silly when we do it. So this time uh, we're doing it on purpose. And then the other thing I wanted to mention is that uh, I have gotten a couple of comments on last week's episode where we talked about the social dilemma. Uh, I would, um, it's an important topic. And actually, I'm going to ask or encourage people if they haven't uh, watched The Social Dilemma to go ahead and do so and then listen to our podcast episode 115 where we talk about uh, Social Dilemma and our our reflections, our, our, our approach to how that information, how the information being presented in that documentary um, should be taken because uh, on its own, it struck us both um, a little bit, uh, a little bit clickbaity, inflammatory. But there's a lot of good information in there, and uh, well worth um, at least thinking long and hard about because it actually does have societal impact. Mm-hmm. With that, I think that's a wrap. You agree? Yep. That's the good. show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com/teh116. If you've got a comment or a question for us, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at The TEH Podcast, or you can always leave a comment on the show notes page. We absolutely get notified and read those no matter whether or not we're paying attention to social media. That's it for this week, and we will see you here again next week. Thanks as always. Bye-bye. Bye.